Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 29. I'm going to continue on Part 2 of Timber Used in Wooden Framed Dwellings. So we kind of got through the construction, the uh, what kind of material, the timbers we talked about. I'm going to get into... Uh, you know the the durability and what can uh, what can bring timber down. So let's start off by uh, talking about moisture, and uh, uh, this episode should be uh, quite similar to duration to last night's, and uh, you know so it's uh, could be around forty minutes or so. So so we're going to talk about moisture. Let's talk about moisture. Moisture is the ultimate uh, cause of degradation almost with everything, everything organic. So under modern construction standards, wood is either kiln-dried or seasoned in the open air. By its very nature, wood draws water into itself, almost like a sponge, through capillary action. Excessive moisture allows a number of decay mechanisms in wood to start. The most predominant forms of decay are not due to fungi, stains due to mold, and damage caused by insects and other animals attracted by moisture in the wood. In the course of drying, moisture that nurtures the growth of the fungi and mold spores is removed. Within the building, many factors contribute to wet conditions. The major sources are leaky roofs, leaky plumbing, inadequate ventilation, inadequate vapor barrier control, poor drainage, and groundwater fluctuations. All these introduce moisture or prevent it, its removal or evaporation. When the moisture content rises above 30%, it reaches a point that allows fungi and mold spores to begin growing. The lack of control of water in its various phases, vapor, liquid, or even ice, can often be the greatest source of problems in wooden buildings. The sources of moisture can sometimes be traced to leaking roofs and faulty plumbing. These repairs can readily be made when the point of the leak is identified. Less obvious are moisture sources caused by inadequate ventilation and inadequate vapor barrier control. Warm air can hold more water vapor than cold air. The water vapor in the air is relatively benign, and the amount of water in the air is often noted by the term relative humidity, or RH. The RH indicates the percentage of moisture content relative to the overall moisture content that the air can contain at any given temperature. So remember, as air cools, the RH increases and approaches 100%. At 100% RH, the air can hold no more moisture at the temperature referred to as the dew point temperature. If the air is warmed, the RH will decrease unless more moisture is also introduced along with the heat. However, when the air is cooled, the vapor condenses. This condensation can occur on any surface that is cooler than the dew point temperature for the given humidity or moisture content of the air. The phenomenon is readily demonstrated by the moisture that forms on the outside of a chilled beverage container when it was removed from a cool environment and placed in a warm, humid environment. When sufficient surface condensation has occurred, water flows down to the surface that the container is on and forms watering, hence 
the invention of coasters for wood furniture was invented. On a similar basis, in the building or dwelling, condensation can occur on obvious surfaces such as glass, but it can also form on wall surfaces or penetrate into wall cavities and condense within them. Moisture, as water vapor or condensation, can be drawn into an untreated surface or any open joints, fissures, or cracks in an, in an impermeable surface and begin to decay, begin the decay process described earlier. On exposed surfaces, moisture problems can be observed directly as the presence of standing water or the failure of painted surfaces. Within the wall cavities, this insidious process may go undetected for a much longer time. As moisture condenses and it is absorbed by the woods or pools at the base of the wall cavity, it attracts fungi, insects, and other vermin, and the decay mechanism they bring with them. One aspect of older buildings that has caused many complications in controlling moisture is that many moisture-producing amenities of modern life did not exist when these buildings were built. Other than kitchens and bathrooms, Little moisture was introduced by the occupants themselves. Moisture control focused on maintaining a weathertight living space, repairing leaky roofs, and controlling seasonal dampness or humidity based on the local climate. Cold, damp air, and warm, humid air were to be avoided for both comfort and health reasons. The construction technology of many buildings allowed for the exchange of fresh outdoor air with fouled indoor air via windows, doors, and gaps in construction materials. Historically, buildings have always been drafty in the beginning, and the air that infiltrated from outdoors allowed the buildings to breathe. Until the late 20th century, when concerns about energy conservation dictated, dictated tightening up of buildings to eliminate infiltration of, and drafts, this air exchange was the primary means of flushing out accumulated seasonal moisture. Fluctuations in moisture content can lead to wood swelling and shrinking. When the construction cannot tolerate dimensional changes caused by shrinkage or swelling, displacement of connections and surface disruptions may contribute to the loss of structural integrity or subsequently admit additional moisture into the, uh, the space. This displacement can occur in exposed interior timber framing where interior moisture levels drop sufficiently to cause checking, which is rupturing along the grain, of timbers. Exposed exterior logs in log construction can check as they dry in the sun. Checking that occurs where water can collect in a potentially significant source of decay. Termites attack both hardwoods and softwoods. Except for, except for Alaska, various species of termites exist across the United States and Southern California. Termites eat wood for food. Wooding in contact with ground provides direct access for termites. However, subterranean termites may also construct light brownish tube structures along the face of foundations to access wood above ground. Subterranean termites excavate burrows along the concealed interior grain of the wood. This subsurface activity is concealed from exterior view and is only revealed when structural integrity fails. 
Less common non-subterranean termites access wood directly without <clears throat> without constructing tubes to eat all the wood in all directions. Their presence is further indicated by tiny fecal pellets located outside the entry hole of the wood. A variety of beetles exist in different regions in North America. Each has its own perforated wood type of the species, but together they can inflict significant damage on any form of wood product. Most, most attack wood after it is cut and during its seasoning process, but a few attack the dry wood in finished products, particularly unfinished hardwood. One of the most common species is the powder post beetle, whose presence is indicated by very tiny holes, I would say roughly 1 16th to 1 8th inch in diameter, in the wood surface with a light powdery residue referred to as frash, F-R-A-S-S, frash, below or around them. So below or around the holes, and you'll, you'll see it dropping to the floor. They lay their eggs in checks and open pores. When the eggs hatch, the resulting larvae lay their, <coughs> or I'm sorry, burrow through the wood in search of food sources located in the sapwood. Over time, the cycle of reinfestation and burrowing can cause significant damage to the wood structure. And, you know, sometimes if you have timbers, uh, floor joists spanning, you know, 14, 16, 18, 20 feet, and you get enough of the uh, powder post-beetle infestation, it's going to give your second floor, even first floor, almost a bounce and a flex when you walk on it. So it becomes very dangerous. Unlike termites, though, carpenter ants use the attacked wood for nesting rather than eating. Their presence can be identified by piles of sawdust outside openings to their burrows. The nesting galleries run parallel to the grain of the wood and are free of frass and sawdust residue. The ants themselves may also be seen outside the burrows. Carpenter bees attack softwoods like fir, pine, cedar, cypress, and redwood. Their presence is identified by one-half-inch diameter holes in wood trimmed near eaves and gables of homes. These bees bore a chamber several inches long running in parallel with the grain. They can also be identified by coarse sawdust and frass that they leave unsightly stains behind the entry hole. Wood wasps also attack dead trees and can confuse bark-covered logs with dead trees. The marine borer, also known as the shipworm, is actually a bivalve mollusk that bores one-half-inch or larger hole tunnels in untreated wood structures such as pier pilings and wooden vessels, commonly found in harbors and other marine locations. Small crustaceans known as gribbles or sea mites attack wood but make much smaller tunnels. In either case, they can completely destabilize the integrity of the item that they have infested. So let's mention a a bit about fire and extreme heat. So wood is a combustible material that is quite vulnerable to fire damage. While earlier timber frame construction was oversized, and could withstand some exposure to fire and still maintain structural integrity. Stick frame construction used in balloon and platform framing methods is readily consumed and can quickly lose structural integrity. The conclusion that fires in early balloon frame buildings were accelerated 
due to the inclusion of the natural flue created between the studs, led to the incorporation of fire stops placed at intervals to eliminate this pathway. The later platform framing eliminated this problem totally. Wood exposed to extreme heat may char but not combust. The heat causes a checking action that reduces the cross-sectional area and the strength of the wood. Ultraviolet energy from the sun can break down the lignum in exposed untreated or clear finished wood surfaces. The lignin leaches out of the wood, the integrity of the wood suffers. If the wood is left untreated, gaps created by this process may admit moisture, which can lead to rot or attract insects, further reducing the integrity of the wood in question. This damage usually appears in three forms. First is a color shift to silver gray, which is primarily an aesthetic concern. Second, in log buildings, facades that face south or west and receive long periods of sunlight throughout the year. Damage can accelerate moisture penetration as fibers rupture or as logs check. Third, the thinner members, such as exposed shingles or exposed plywood, the damage from ultraviolet light exposure can be more pronounced since they are thinner and have more exposed grain ends. The ultraviolet decay will break down the surface and allow additional moisture to collect in inclement weather. The exposure may begin a series of wet, drying, or freeze-thaw cycles that further reduce the integrity of the material. When a wood surface is in frequent intermittent contact with harder materials, the wood can be worn away through abrasion. While not common for enclosed structural members, abrasion is common for interior surfaces such as floors, woodwork, and casework due to contact with foot traffic and or other abrasive sources. Likewise, exterior wood surfaces can be damaged by swaying tree branches and cables or wind-blown sand. Wear is more readily apparent in softwoods and hardwoods. Normal wear and tear can be expected in high-traffic areas, such as floors and stair treads. However, when doors and windows get stuck in or abrade their frames, this may be a sign of structural settlement and should be investigated further. Animals initiate decay mechanisms that may not damage the building's structural integrity directly. However, the damage they cause to surfaces may help initiate the decay mechanisms described previously. Insects in wood attract predators, such as woodpeckers that destroy the wood while assessing and hunting down insects. While not immediately a structural concern unless an extremely large member number of the holes have been made, holes can be an unsightly nuisance. Mice and other vermin can nest in cavities in walls by chewing and enlarging openings in the walls. House pets can scratch or chew woodwork and severely damage surface finishes. Farm animals can lick, gnaw, or kick wood members, causing moderate to severe damage to enclosures and structural posts. If the growth of a tree from which logs or timbers were obtained was not uniform due to wood exposure, I'm sorry, due to wind exposure, solar orientation and location, for example, a leaning tree. Unrelieved stresses in the wood fibers may have caused the wood to twist, warp, check, or splinter 
as they seasoned in place. And this could be thought of as a tree sitting on a, a very high hillside on the side of a mountain that gets blown strictly one way by wind. The back side of that tree will have a very gnarly grain. It develops this grain to help keep that, that tree erect during its growth cycle. So if unseasoned or inadequately seasoned wood was used in the original construction of a dwelling, these forces may cause deflections to occur as the wood in its structural age begins. These decay conditions may be further accelerated if seasonal exposure to moisture, temperature, and sunlight vary significantly, significantly and frequently. Wall racks and joints open in response to shrinkage, causing any number of other decay me mechanisms described just past to begin. So again, if you get timber from, say, the tree that was on the side of the hill that has one side going up the trunk is very tight and very hard because it keeps the tree erect. The other side is very flexible and fluid and pliant or pliant. And you put that in your wall for, for heavy-duty studying or timber framing in older houses, and it dries out. It's going to go back to the way it was when it was a tree. So any potential remediation method refers to a variety of alternatives to consider. For example, in repairing a building whose plates, timbers, or logs have rotted due to inadequate separation from the ground, for example, inadequate or no foundations, settlement, or soil buildup, steps need to be taken to eliminate the direct soil contacted by either installing a new foundation or removing the buildup soil. Both of these solutions introduce a change in the physical appearance that may be unavoidable when trying to preserve the building in the long run. In any specific remediation, consider several alternatives that mitigate the visual changes to or losses of historic building fabric before commencing work. In all treatment strategy selections, the overriding guideline is to remove or mitigate the source of the decay mechanism, even when no other work is deemed necessary. Treating the symptom without removing the source is of little benefit since the problem will simply reoccur again and again over time. Four basic strategies are available for the, <clears throat> the problems will simply just re keep recurring in the remediation of the wood of the structure. The first is to leave the item as is. The remaining strategies can be described in increasing order of intervention the sta as stabilization and conservation, infill or repair, and replication and replacement. The historic value of the component in question will often dictate the strategy selected. If the component is in suitable condition, then the best course of action may be to leave it as is and protect it during the remainder of the project. Stabilization and conservation re refer to addressing the physical integrity of the item. It generally involves eliminating decay mechanisms, such as in insects and fungi, and then using consolidants and epoxies to reinforce the remaining historic material and fabric. Infill repairs incorporate some form of reinforcing materials into the historic material that goes beyond simple epoxy injections. Lastly, if the material is beyond all hope and repair, then replacement or replication may be the only appropriate recourse of action. As the source of decay and other impact become identified, the damaged material may possibly be preserved.
with only nominal repairs being made. In this manner, materials can be stabilized and conserved without significant further loss of historic fabric. Three of the more common stabilization and conservation strategy are described below. So let's talk about moisture abatement and control. Controlling moisture mitigation is often the single most important remediation strategy in wooden buildings and or wooden and brick or uh, stone buildings. While leaking roofs and faulty plumbing can often be repaired or replaced, moisture can, or continual moisture damage within a wall cavity is often much more time-consuming and expensive to correct. In certain instances, the moisture may have had long-term pre-existing sources, such as the vapor generated in kitchens or bathrooms. In other cases, relocating or introducing these uses without attention to the moisture-generating sources may have introduced moisture to rooms that originally had none at all. Physical evidence, such as mold spores, mildew, rot, damp surfaces, peeling paint surfaces, and effervescing salt crystals in plaster or brick, may provide the clues needed to confirm the presence and extent of the problem. However, correcting the problem becomes more difficult as the historic significance of the building increases. In most cases, identifying problems within the wall cavity without removing some enclosing materials is virtually impossible. The exception would be inspections using non-destructible testing techniques that may indicate the presence of moisture but possibly not the full extent of the damage. To obtain a visual assessment, the removals range from small, discrete sections that will allow visual insertion of fiber optic inspection devices to larger sections for the direct physical inspection of certain areas alone. On a similar basis, the actual repair dictated by the damage may require that large sections be removed to enable repair. From the inspection process, it will be possible to develop the appropriate treatment strategies to correct the problem. If health or, or life safety is involved, removal of sufficient historic fabric will be needed, definitely. Otherwise, when no health or life safety issues are present, it may be possible to simply monitor the conditions over time to see if the moisture is in fact introducing further decay. Traditionally, atmospheric temperature and moisture conditions are monitored using hygrometer graphs that record the humidity and temperature on a continuous paper graph. So, modern traditional or, mo or modern digital data loggers, sorry, are more also available to perform the same function and provide the means to download the data to a computer for analysis. The options for moisture monitoring within a material or wall assembly are vast and sometimes quite complex and very expensive. Simple handheld moisture meters can read and indicate moisture content in wood as well as devices that likewise can measure the moisture content in the air. These meters work well for initial inspections or to assess periodic conditions. When longer-term monitoring is needed and labor resources are at a premium, installing moisture monitoring data logging devices that store data that can be downloaded into a computer for analysis may be economically feasible. At the high end of this strategy is the use of centralized computer directly 
connected to these monitoring stations. These loggers introduce a visual and physical component because unless wireless technology is feasible for the building being monitored, all the data logging components must be physically hardwired back to the central computer. Careful planning is needed to conceal these cables from view of both the aesthetic and the security reasons. The central computer itself may also be on site or may be accessed or may access the data via a dial-up modem connection to a local data monitoring device controller. Some suggested locations for the cabling and <clears throat> terminal devices include heat, ventilation, and air conditioning, HVAC, chases, closets, and other non-public portions of the building. The two energy crisis in the early 70s resulted in a greater concern for energy consumption. Numerous construction methods and technologies were developed to minimize energy usage in new construction. Unfortunately, many of these technologies were cost prohibited to retrofit into older and historic buildings. This was due for both the were in both cases when they were cost prohibited in order to retrofit. So this continued to be true for both the monetary expenses and the loss of historic building fabric. Two of these processes, the monetary expenses, <clears throat> directly impacted the control of moisture in a building. First, attempts to reduce infiltration and the unconditioned air that entered a building severely diminished a building's capacity to flush out moisture naturally. Second, new insulation methods were employed to introduce thermal resistance into cavities within the walls. A more, as more heat was retained inside the building, exterior surfaces remained cooler and became subjected to both more condensation and freeze-thaw cycles that accelerated their de decay. These modifications have created recognition of the importance of vapor barriers and the difficulty of achieving true vapor control in many historic construction assemblies. An assortment of moisture control products, including vapor barrier paints, have been used recently with varying levels of success and all in in introduced changes to the historic appearance or removal of historic fabric. So rather than removing substantial portions of room finishes to install a true continuous vapor barrier, an ongoing debate exists about whether air barriers can be installed at the points where airborne vapor can be prevented from entering wall cavities. So, in essence, attempts to control energy must use <coughs> energy use must be tempered with a recognition that deviations from the long existing thermal cycles within a wall assembly may introduce moisture control issues that did not previously exist or may, re may require extensive removal of historic fabric. While moisture source in a specific space may be controlled by installing ventilation and exhaust equipment, controlling environmental or naturally occurring climate control sources is quite complicated where the moisture migration is a result of a climate or site-related source. Explore possible methods that can be used to alleviate the moisture, including the following. So let's go down a list here. Evaluate whether changes in landscaping contribute to water infiltration into the building 
and, where possible, modify the landscape to provide drainage away from the building. Verify soil conditions and consider some form of subsurface draining system, for example, French drains, to mitigate or eliminate moisture at the perimeter of the building. Verify that moisture is not entering through the soil of unfinished basements or crawl spaces and that sufficient ventilation is present to remove the water source or vapor. Ensure that all penetrations into attics or unheated spaces from occupied spaces are sealed to prevent moisture migration, especially from bathrooms and kitchens. Install a vapor barrier on the warm side toward the occupied space of the insulation layer in the attic when it is getting re-insulated at a time of restoration. Verify that the attic and crawl space ventilation openings are sufficiently sized and unobstructed to permit the air to move freely through them. And lastly, consider to use the use of dehumidifiers where appropriate to reduce moisture due to seasonal humidity and dampness when other means of mitigation are not feasible or working out properly. So let's uh, briefly touch on pesticides and preservatives. So there are two approaches to controlling pest damage in, in wood. The first is through the use of pesticides, including both insecticides and fungicides. The second is through the use of preservatives. Pesticides are the primary means of effectively killing invasive pests. While pesticides are potentially hazardous to human and pets, when used with appropriate preparation and caution, they can be very effective. As with all chemical agents, care must be taken to verify where, when, and how a pesticide product may be used. Local requirements for the transportation and disposal of the byproducts of the process must be met. Confirm these requirements with the local building and health departments before starting this process. Contractors and preservationists trained and licensed to carry out the fumigation process should be hired to mitigate any potential liability issues from the use of a particular pesticide in question. Several common methods of pest removal are available. First, are dry or wetted powders that the pest contacts directly by walking through them, breathing, or ingesting them. Second, are pesticides used as fungicides in a gaseous spray that penetrates the recesses of the nest or infestation site directly. In some instances, this process requires that the entire space or building be sealed or tented, for example, enclosed in an airtight fabric to ensure that the lethal dosage concentration is achieved properly. In this case, the tenting remains in place for a predetermined number of hours or days as needs warrant. The method has a significant drawback. It may be necessary to repeat the fumigation process several times to eliminate the pest entirely, and this introduces lethal toxins for humans into the environment and animals. Conversely, rather than attacking the pest after they have become a problem, a common practice was and still is to coat and apply preservatives to the wood before or during construction. A variety of inorganic and organic pesticides have been developed 
and used in various building applications from new construction on. Each new pesticide was more toxic than the previous ones. In the mid-19th century, a process was developed that forced creosote and other chemicals into the wood with the intention of preventing a problem in the first place. In In a later method that was used since the 1940s, toxic chemicals such as chromium copper arsenate are applied and then forced into the wood surface using heat and pressure. These pressure-treated wood products have been pre-treated with preservatives to withstand attacks from fungi and other wood-consuming pests. Since the beginning of the environmental movement in the 1960s, these products have come under high scrutiny because of their carcinogenic toxicity in humans. The toxicity of a pesticide is rated by the term LD50, which is an abbreviation for the lethal lethal dosage needed to kill 50% of the pest population. This is the number of grams of poison per kilogram weight of the pest. Lower LD50 dosage levels indicate higher toxicity and can be quantified by, by several charts that are available. So, for example, LD50 um, less than 5 grams per kilogram is extremely toxic. An LD50 product that is less than 50 grams per kilograms to less than 500 grams per kilograms is moderately toxic. LD50 greater than 500 grams or kilograms is slightly toxic. And LD50 greater than 5,000 grams per kilograms is absolutely non-toxic. So just a little chart there and uh, listen you know, for a few times if you need to pick up on that again. So for example, the inorganic insecticide sodium fluoride has an LD50 rating of 0.18 grams per kilograms and is classified as extremely toxic. The growing awareness of the health issues related to certain pesticides in the United States and Canada has led to the banning or restricted use of PCPs and dioxins in residential applications. In the case of pressure-treated lumber, as many people use today for decks and railings, the use of CCA for residential uses in the United States has been banned since 2003, and products using alkaline copper quat, ACQ, and copper boron azole are now available instead of. So another commonly used inorganic pesticide is sodium borate, whose LD50 rating is 5.66 grams per kilogram, qualifying it as extremely toxic to most of the fungi and insects that damage wood. However, the benefit of borate-based preservatives is that they are effective against brown rot and white rot fungi and most wood-destroying insects, while being relatively safe for both users and their environment and their animals. So let's talk briefly about consolidants and epoxies. The chemical formulation for consolidants and epoxies have varied through time. Consolidants are low-viscosity liquids that penetrate, penetrate small fissures and cracks in the surface of the materials being conserved. Where they cure or harden to stabilize the, decay, the decaying or decayed material. They are sometimes used before an epoxy treatment that is intended to fill the larger voids created by the decay mechanisms. For example, checking, rot, and loss of material. 
Epoxies are filler materials, typically made of resins or other plastic materials, which can be used to fill gaps where original materials have been lost. Some epoxies can be sanded, planed, or even carved to match the original profile contours of the original material. When left to cure, both of these treatments bind the existing decay material into a more stable condition. For the most part, due to their penetrating nature, these treatments are not reversible, but are used when there is a sufficient historic significance of the material being treated, or when replacement or replication of an element is not available or desired. Superficial surface damage and limited internal damage to a structural element can be repaired in this manner without destroying the remaining healthy wood. Consolidants and epoxies are appropriate where the exposed surfaces will be repainted or concealed by subsequent rehabilitation or repair processes. So let's uh, touch base with infills or repairs. When the damage is extensive, damaged materials can be repaired or replaced. In repairing a structural member, it is crucial to consider both the visual and structural public view, while others are visually intrusive. The selection of the appropriate method must balance the level of acceptable visual intrusion with the need to consider health and life safety. The the selection must also consider the economic feasibility of completing a possible repair of this sort. When damage is severe, consolidants and epoxies alone may not be sufficient for proper repairs. Damage at the ends or along the length of the structural members may have created more stresses that cause connections to fail or the members to sag or move. In this situation where the damage has not totally destroyed the member, the member may be reinforced at the location of the damage without having to replace the entire member itself. So along any number of or combination of materials, such as clamps, angle iron, gusset plates, or brackets, two common methods use epoxies in combination with other materials to complete needed repairs. The first method is the epoxy reinforcement method system. Developed in the 1970s in Canada, the second is the beta system, developed in the Netherlands. Both methods have inspired many variations in the combinations of epoxies and reinforcement materials in attempts to retain historic materials. And this was noted by Weaver in 1997 in his seminal work, Conserving Buildings. Neither system should be used indiscriminately, particularly because the epoxies are, for practical purposes, irreversible. Both methods use epoxies in combination with fiberglass, plastic, or metal to make rods that are then inserted into channels and holes that have been cut or bored into structurally weakened members. After insertion, additional epoxy is poured into the void surrounding the rod and left it to, to secure. The epoxy may also be used in a mold in situ to replace missing segments or structural members. In this approach, the newly molded member is held in place using fiberglass rods and the adhesive bond of the epoxy where it contacts the remaining original structural members. So let's talk about wood. Um, we'll talk about 
something called a Dutchman or, and or splicing in a piece of wood to get rid of a rotted or deteriorated surface. So beyond structural reinforcement of materials, another method is to remove only the most severely damaged portions of the wood member and then infill the cleared out void space with a patch to cut to match the opening created by the removal of the decayed wood. This member is known as a Dutchman, and it can be used to provide a continuous surface on the exterior exposed face of the wood member. And these are particularly, um, are used particularly with heavy uh, structural supports and timber framing. The Dutchman can be used to conceal an epoxy repair or any other internal structural reinforcement. The Dutchman can also be plain, carved, or milled to provide a continuous surface on the ornamental surface as well. The Dutchman may be attached to either nailing or screwing it into place or using adhesives. If aesthetics require that the means of attachment be concealed, then it may be attached using water-resistant synthetic resin adhesives that are compatible with the materials and water moisture conditions or using a combination of pre-drilled holes and epoxy binder as described in the preceding section. A second infill or infill method of repairs consists of removing a damaged section of wood and splicing in a new piece of wood. The connection is secured by either nailing, bolting, or screwing in some new instances using adhesives to bind a new wood with the old wood. It's the marriage of the two. Repairing the deteriorated crowns or the ends of a log building also involves a splining technique. This deteriorated crown is removed and a new crown is spliced into the former location. For this application, the connection consists of drilling three matching sets of aligned holes into the remaining existing log, matching the crown and then securing the crown in place using fiberglass rods and epoxy. An alternative to removing the weakened member is leaving the damaged wood in place and sistering one or more new pieces of wood alongside it. In either case, the splice or sistered reinforcement member is then fastened to a heavily, heavily, uh, I'm sorry, a healthy section of the original member using through bolts, epoxies, or adhesives where appropriate. Dutchman repairs can be done in a variety of locations, particularly if the surface is to be concealed by paint. Splicing and sistering are generally done where the work will not be in public view, as they alter the visual appearance of the structural members. In either case, the repair may be painted a specific color or left unfinished in contrast to the repair with the original construction, so that future investigators will understand that it is not the original type construction. In a rehabilitation project, replication or replacement of failed or missing items is done when the cost of physically correcting the problem far exceeds the historic value of the item. Replacing historic fabric is sometimes necessary. In the remediation techniques that we've described in this episode, a key strategy is to minimize visual awareness of the repairs. The standards, however, do allow replication of missing elements based on physical evidence.
They also allow new replacement construction if it is sufficiently differentiated from the original. Therefore, it is possible to replicate or even replace missing features. The replacement materials must have com comparable strength characteristics. The replacement wood must be adequately seasoned to minimize shrinking once it is installed. On a similar basis, if wood is to be left unpainted or clear finished, then the grain and color of the wood must be matched using the same tree species. However, as the color of the wood must be matched using the same, the building must remain, also remain safe to occupy and the structural repair methods must be approved by an accredited professional historic preservationist. Removal of historic fabric should not be taken lightly, but when it is unavoidable, care should be taken to maintain the visual integrity of the space or exterior appearance by concealing the new structural elements or, if they even must be revealed at all, by differentiating them from the remaining original fabric. Even in concealed areas, it is suggested that new structural members be differentiated from prior ones by the use of colored paint or other markings to alert furniture, or I'm sorry, to alert future workers, and this includes furniture that's used in the dwellings, to their later addition to the original construction points. A key precaution is necessary when removing any structural member. The remaining structure must be stabilized to eliminate movement. By doing so, it is possible to remove rotted sill beams or logs from the very bottom of the structure and still maintain structural integrity. This integrity can also be maintained when major repairs to the foundation and the adjoining wooden structure members are warranted. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation, is signing out. Thanks for uh, listening.